to be converted from out of a state of sin to a state of sanctification is the goal of all that truly seek the will of God because we seek to praise him. But there's a lot of misunderstanding about how we do that. And there's a great misunderstanding about the role of the Holy Spirit in the conversion of of a sinner. You know, I don't know of any Bible subject that is more badly butchered than that of the subject of the Holy Spirit. Almost everything conceivable in religion today has been attributed to the Holy Spirit. And some people will cry out loud for the Holy Spirit to come down and save sinners. They talk more about the Holy Spirit than they do about God the Father and God the Son. They even pray to God for a baptism of the Holy Spirit and of fire. And if somebody gets excited and throws a fit during a church service, well, they just know the Holy Spirit has gotten them. The Spirit's gotten them. I personally think a squirrel's probably gotten them. But they're jumping up and down and they're running around and they're falling and rolling around on the ground and they're waving their hands in the air. And then they're saying, oh, I'm going to have a conversation with God. And their idea of a conversation with God goes a little something like this. And please think about this. Imagine if you were to go up and talk to somebody and start saying, blah, 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 blah. But that's exactly what they do. It looks crazy. It is crazy. It's insane. And you know what? Worst of all, it is disrespectful to our just and holy God. Amen. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why on earth would you address such a dignified person as that? With such nonsense. And then they try and say. Oh it's from him. No it is not. But these people just know. It's the Holy Spirit. Filling them up. And making them run around. And get this nice warm feeling. In their heart. As I've said. Pepperoni does that to me. But I don't think. That when I get a burn in my heart. It means that God the Holy Spirit. Is demanding I run out with a machine gun. Or such nonsense. These people are crazy. But it's no wonder. We have so many infidels. In the world today. Now, I believe what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Just imagine that. I believe what the Bible says. But I do not believe that the Holy Spirit makes people act in those ways. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit operates in conversion. That's true. That every soul that is converted is converted by the Holy Spirit. But we're going to find out this morning how the Holy Spirit operates in the conversion of the sinner. And it's according to what the Bible teaches. And even though God himself has told us the answer, the religious world is full of theories as to how the Holy Spirit acts on a person. So that person is saved at that very moment, like a bolt of lightning. They were unsaved and now they're saved. Bolt of lightning. They just feel that in their heart. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It never has been what the Bible teaches. First of all, there's a theory That the Holy Spirit operates separate and apart from the word of God. Or of any agency whatsoever. But what we need to realize is that there is not one example of such a theory in the entire Bible being proven. Not one. And not only that. If such a theory was true. And the Holy Spirit does not operate on every soul. Then God is a respecter of persons. And that is the very thing the Holy Bible declares that God is not. Listen to Acts chapter 10 verse 35, 4 and 35. Where Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. 
But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. So if God sends the Holy Spirit directly upon a sinner and seeing that all are sinners and doesn't send it upon every sinner, wouldn't that make God a respecter of persons? If not, what would it take to make him one? Well, John 3.16 declares that God so loved the world. God so loved the world. And that means all of the world, not, not just a certain group. So does he send the Holy Spirit on just a part of the world? Just upon one continent or one island? Seeing that he loves the whole world? If you believe that the Holy Spirit operates separate and apart from the word of God upon the sinner... And seeing that he apparently doesn't do that to all sinners, then that must mean that God doesn't have the whole world and therefore that makes God a respecter of persons. means that he wouldn't love the whole world. People will say they don't believe that. Even as they support the theory that the Holy Spirit operates separate and apart from the word. And that he comes down direct and directly saves people by leaving others alone. Next, there's the theory that the Holy Spirit operates only on the elect. There's a special class of people, according to this theory. In other words, way back before the beginning of time, before God ever laid the foundation of the world, he elected certain people to be saved and others to be damned. He made them just to be damned and go to hell. He elected certain people to be saved, lifted up above others, let the others be lost. So, so why would Jesus have come to save the lost? See the contradiction there? The contradiction between this man-made theory and the truth revealed in God's word. They believe that each number of people who are saved and lost is so fixed that it cannot be increased or diminished. Well, thanks be to God, this is as false as false can be. But they also teach, therefore, God in his own good time sends the Holy Spirit upon those thus elected. And another man-made theory without any scriptural foundation whatsoever says that God has, has special favorites. Special people. Special people like Kenneth Copeland or Billy Graham or the Pope. Special people who will tell you that they are God on earth. Or they are the voice of God on earth. Or people who will tell you that they received a special revelation that when Jesus was talking about hell, he didn't really mean it. He didn't mean to talk about those things which make you feel uncomfortable. Oh no, he, he came to, to give these people special messages to tickle your ears and give you what you wanted to hear so that you would lay their hands with silver. Oh, palms across their hands with silver. They will say these lies. But they will be a curse before God. You see, according to this theory that some are specially set apart for salvation, that would mean that man is not a free moral being. Again, contrary to the word of God. This theory would say that we have no power of choice. It says that man wasn't made in the image of God and therefore isn't responsible in any way for his salvation or damnation. He is either elected to be, is either elected to be saved or lost, even before he was ever born by God. But the Bible represents man as a responsible being. 
that he has the power of choice. And that he can act and he must act if he's going to be saved. Peter said in Acts 2.40 to those he preached to on Pentecost, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. See, God gives us free will. He gives us freedom to choose. According to that theory, you can do whatever you want to do. doesn't matter what you do. You can be the most horrible person in the world. And you're going to be saved. You're going to go straight to heaven because God picked you before the foundation of the world. Or you could be the nicest person in the world and done good things your whole life and you'll still go to hell because you know what? God made you for spite. God hates you. That's the theory. And it's wicked. And it makes no sense whatsoever biblically. But it certainly makes sense to those who wish to form a cult around themselves. It certainly makes sense for those who wish to teach false doctrine for their own edification, for their own self-worth, their own ideas. And that's what it is. It's their own ideas. It's interesting to me that these theories, which are in the religious world, and so-called congregations that call themselves Christians, that... These ideas, if they were true, it would mean that you should just do whatever you want to do. You can't affect your salvation. And not you're either chosen or you're damned. Do as thou wilt. Do as thou wilt. You know, that's the supreme commandment of Satanism. Right there in the Satanic Bible. Alistair Crowley invented it, but, well, the idea, he wrote it down. But it was been around for a long, long time. So I tell people to save themselves if they had been elected to be saved from all eternity. Was Peter a con man? Was he not filled with the Holy Spirit? Was he not an apostle of Christ? Was he a false teacher? Not at all. Who am I going to choose to believe? The apostle Peter or Jim Jones? Or the Pope? I know who I'm going to believe. The word of God. For the best reasons imaginable. For the word of God is Holy Ghost language. If this terrible theory be true, they couldn't change things. So why, why ask them to try? In Acts 16.30, the heathen jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice what Paul didn't say to him. He didn't say, oh, there's nothing you can do. You're either saved or damned from the beginning. You have no choice in the matter. No, this poor fellow didn't know that he was saved from all eternity, did he? But he knew that he could do something. And furthermore, he didn't ask the apostles to have the Holy Spirit come directly down upon him, fill his heart so he could dance a jig in the middle of a church building while screaming at the top of his voice. The apostles didn't ask either. They didn't ask God to send the Holy Spirit down in him. Paul told him what to do. And you know what this wise man did? He did it. He did it. He was baptized, him and his house, for the forgiveness of their sins. Contrast that, what Paul is saying, and what so many so-called preachers say today. But we also have the belief that the Holy Spirit operates and convicts by or through the agency of the word, preached by human beings. In this way, the Holy Spirit teaches, convicts, reproves, and converts. 
This is not only scriptural, but it is also common sense. The other theories are foolishness. Well, this is why we have the Holy Bible. So let me just repeat this key point. This is why God has given us the Holy Bible. It's right there. It doesn't need any adding to or anything being removed from. Just an understanding of it. Crack it open and read it. Peter in 1 Peter 1 and verse 12 said that they preached the gospel unto you by the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven. God sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles and they opened their mouths and preached what the Holy Spirit said preach. And in that way the people heard. They were converted. They were convinced and they obeyed the gospel call, the good news. And thus they were saved. So what do we preach if not the same words which they spoke? We're quoting them. See, these are the words of God. So let's look at some Bible examples of the operation of the Holy Spirit. Over in Acts 7, verse 51, Stephen said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do ye. Now how are they resisting the Holy Spirit? By resisting what the Holy Spirit was saying through Stephen. And not the Holy Spirit separate and apart from the word. So when you resist the word of God. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit gave the word in the same way. You say Stephen said their fathers resisted the Holy Spirit. And that's how they did it. They ignored God's word. Now let's go over to Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 30 and get an example of it. And here it is, Nehemiah 9 and verse 30. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifieth against them by, the, by thy spirit in thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear. God testifieth against them, but he did it by his spirit through the prophets and not separate and apart from the word of God. Again, in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 2, David said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. David was a prophet, and God, through his Spirit, spoke through David. We know the Holy Spirit operated on sinners on Pentecost. But how did he do it? Well, the answer is simple. He sent out for a bunch of pepperoni pizzas and they got a nice warm, warm feeling in their heart, didn't they? And they were so happy and Pizza Hut was overcrowded and Eva wasn't happy. <laughs> no, not at all. It wasn't an emotional thing like that. The answer is simple. Through the preaching of the word. Amen. Keep it simple. One of the things I was taught in school, keep it simple, son. As my good friend and teacher Tom Snyder said, keep it simple, stupid. Well, that was Tom. And he was right. You see, the Holy Spirit came onto the apostles as Jesus had promised them. He promised them. And we read about it in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and John chapter 16, verses 7 to 14. And they preached the gospel unto the people. The people heard. They were convinced of their sins, convicted of their sins. 
They were convinced of the righteousness and the judgment of Almighty God. And they cried out, man and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.37, not shut up and go away, you bigot. Stop speaking, stop talking. We don't want you to say that. It's uncomfortable. It's not itching our ears. It's unpleasant what you're asking us to do, that we have to submit to God's will. Don't we know better than God? No, you don't. We do not know better than God. So what happened here? You know, now was a, a good time for Peter to tell them to come down front and to pray to God for the Holy Spirit, wasn't it? No, that's not what Peter did. To not come down to the sinner's bench, that's not what he was talking about. He said in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. That's the forgiveness of your sins. And so you can be forgiven of your sins. That's what it means in the Greek. Not be baptized because you've already been forgiven, but to be forgiven of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise of God, salvation. This is the way the, the apostles preach salvation. And gospel preachers teach it the same way today. And if they're not, there's something wrong. They do not tell people that they can find salvation without doing just what Peter told the people to do on Pentecost to do. Yes, the Holy Spirit operates on the sinner in conversion, but he does not do it separate and apart from the word of God. Now in the gospel account of Luke, chapter 22 and verse 53, our blessed Redeemer says, When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus was being led away by his earthly foes, yet he could see and indeed declare who was behind this illegal arrest. And it was an illegal arrest. Everything about the arrest of Christ and his murder was shady. From the very beginning, Satan was out to stop Christ and his redemptive mission at any cost. In Egypt, in ancient times, in Bethlehem, the evil one's puppets sought to destroy the line that would produce the Messiah. Jealous kings and homicidal seekers of vengeance tried their hands at stopping the coming of Christ. And now those who were entrusted with the sacred law turned against the very one they claimed to worship. They'd been given the privilege of protecting the word of God, making sure that there were no errors placed within it. But they brought error. They added their own traditions. And when the Messiah finally came, not only did they not recognize him, but they murdered him. They betrayed him. Who do you think was behind all that? See, the true power behind the opponents of Christ and his church are the forces of evil so aptly described of by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.12, where he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And oh, 
wasn't he describing the religious authorities of his own people at that time? But what has changed in the world today? Not a lot. We're still opposed. Our Lord himself told us where the enemy often attacks in Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Such were the ones who ordered the Lord's arrest on that night so long ago. They were puppets of their master, the devil, as so many are today. Connected to this is Satan's claim to possess authority over this world. In Matthew 4, verse 9, we read, The devil taketh him, meaning Jesus, up into an exceedingly high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Some neck. He was just as explicit in Luke 4, verse 6 to 7, where we're told, And the devil taking him up into an, an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time, And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Humanity may have lost sovereignty over the earth at the fall, but Jesus, God in the flesh, will take it back along with his people. In Matthew 28, 18, we read these wonderful, triumphant words of the risen Christ, Words which shook terror into the very soul of the devil and the forces of darkness. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You see, brethren, something happened to dethrone Satan and enthrone earth's rightful ruler. The fourfold gospel is the account of that overthrow. In John's account of the gospel, as recorded in earlier chapters in the Word, and in the earlier chapters, chapter 12, chapters 12 to 19, it is very clear that the prince of this present world is being overthrown by Christ. Yes, Christ came to seek us, to save those who are lost. Yes, Christ came to redeem us from our sins, to be the sacrifice that we could never be, to atone for our sins that we could never atone. But he was also taking back his rightful kingdom of earth. As our Lord Jesus was leaving the upper room, he declared that the ruler of this world is coming to get him. John 14 and verse 30. And in John 13 verse 2, we learn that Satan entered into Judas, setting up the showdown between the forces of Satan and the Lord Jesus as revealed in chapters 18 and 19. As we are told in John 1 29, Jesus would take away the sins of the world, the Lamb of God, The forces of darkness could not stop Christ from dethroning Satan and purchasing for himself an eternal kingdom that we who love and obey him are a part of. That kingdom's here now and we're a part of it if we're Christians. Before Acts chapter 2, the Bible is always pointing toward the coming of God's kingdom. After this chapter, the scriptures boldly proclaim that the kingdom is here. It is here. It is now. Christ is reigning. It is the, our Lord's kingdom. And in it, it is our privilege to serve him. His rule gives us purpose for more glorious things. And it's far more glorious than any other. 
Let us strive against the forces of darkness and overcome them in Jesus' name. May we, with every ounce of our being, strive to make his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6 and verse 10. You see, the puppets of the devil cannot stop the kingdom's advance. They have tried it. The Caesars tried it. Hitler tried it. The communists tried it. Islam tried it. Oh, they tried to stomp it out. They're still trying to stomp it out. But do you know where Christianity is growing faster than anywhere else in the world? In Islamic countries where the sentence of becoming a Christian is death. We can boldly proclaim from pulpits across America, and praise God we can do this, that Jesus is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. In these lands, they have to whisper it. But the gospel is no less powerful. We need to remember that in order to avoid any apostasy of any kind, the Lord's church must recognize and follow the word of God as the only standard of the truth, and that truth in its totality. We need to remember four very important words taught by our Savior. Words which were spoken by a man who had nowhere to lay his head except on the ground under the stars. He had to ride into Jerusalem upon a donkey and not upon a horse. During the First World War, the British took Jerusalem from the Turks. General Allenby was walking, was told, here's a horse, ride triumphantly into Jerusalem. He said, I will not ride in on a horse. He walked in in his bare feet. He said, how can I ride in on a horse where my Lord rode in on a donkey? Our Lord rode in upon a donkey, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. He deserved the greatest crown. And the crown they gave him was a crown of thorns. But that crown is unparalleled in its majesty, in its meaning, in the emotions that well up within our souls. He wore that crown that pricked his head, that caused his blood to spill from his brow. In full knowledge that it was for each and one of, every one of us. What a king. That's my king. He didn't even have a tomb to be laid in when he was crucified. He had to borrow it. But he only borrowed it for a little while. He didn't need it for too long. They couldn't keep him down. Oh no, these words that were spoken by the one who died for the sins of mankind upon a hill so many years ago, he instructed his followers to remember. He instructed us when he taught us how to pray to our Heavenly Father. And he said, I said it a few minutes ago, and say it again, thy will be done, Matthew 6 and verse 10. His will be done. And all will be judged according to if they have done his will or not. And all will bow their knees to Christ. Apostasy creeps in when we put our own will before God's will. We as Christians must always remember this, that it is his church and it is not ours. It is for his glory and not our convenience. We're here to honor him and not to honor ourselves or bring glory upon ourselves. It is not an organization to be played with or to twist its teachings to fit our own egos and agendas. We are to live the Christian life and to live the Christian life is not to choose an easy life. 
To apply the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ to our lives requires commitment, dedication and total vigilance. You see, the Lord's church will protect itself against apostasy, but only by applying God's word in all that we do. Failure to understand this will only lead to disaster. You see, the Holy Spirit does operate in our conversion. When we read his words or we hear his words proclaimed, those words given to us in the Holy Bible, not a special revelation that brother, sister, master, father, or most reverend apostle, you know, there's an apostle down the road apparently. He must be pretty old. We do what God says and not what man says. Otherwise, we are in deep trouble. In Acts twenty two sixteen, the word of God says, And now why tarriest thou? To tarry means to wait. Why are you waiting to become a part of God's kingdom? You have heard the word today. You have heard the words of the Holy Spirit. Those words which you find in the word of God. Will you obey those words? That gospel call? Will you be like the wise ones of old who listened to Peter? who listened to Paul and the apostles and those who came after them? Or will you deny that truth, waiting for a special revelation from your favorite book-toothed celebrity? Well, the Bible says, And now why tarriest thou? Do not wait. Arise, you see the action. Arise, you arise, you have a choice. Arise and be baptized, that is, fully immersed. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you trust in the Lord, if you trust in the word of God, if you trust in the language of the Holy Spirit revealed in God's word, then obey his word while yet you may. It is urgent. There's no time to waste. If there was no time to waste at Pentecost, and if there was no time to waste for the jailer, and if there was no time to waste for the Ethiopian the Ethiopian um, uh, the Ethiopian treasurer that guy (laughs) it was no time for them to waste don't waste any time just get going be baptized wash away your sins become a part of God's kingdom today because the fact is it doesn't matter who's ruling any country on this world Jesus Christ is king yesterday today and tomorrow and we put our faith and our trust in him and no matter what might happen he'll get us through He always has in the past and he always will in the future because he is glorious and his kingdom cannot be overthrown. Well, let us make sure that we're right with him according to his sacred word and not the imaginations of wicked men. If you're not a Christian this morning, I beg you get right with him right now by obeying the gospel. And if you are and you need our prayers, we are here for you as we stand and sing the song of invitation. Thank you. Oh.